From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone. From Anderson, Indiana, and currently residing in Indianapolis, Indiana, he is the Chief Marketing Officer at Lessonly. Please welcome Kyle Lacey! Hey, thanks for having me. (laughs) The crowd goes crazy. (laughs) Or in COVID, it's just, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I just learned yesterday on Clubhouse that the Clubhouse version of applause is to rapidly tap the mute and unmute button so it looks like you're applauding. I, I didn't realize that was a thing. I always thought when I saw that it was people's Wi-Fi going in and out, but apparently it means applause. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I know I'm still not on Clubhouse, but that's okay. You can anyways, take care of it for me. As I mentioned, he is Kyle Lacey, CMO of Lessonly. What is Lessonly? Well, they are a powerfully simple training software that helps teams learn, practice, and do better work. They enable busy teams to get on the same page, stay ahead of change, and deliver amazing experiences to customers and prospects. Now, Lessonly has grown in the years it has been around. They are now over 200 employees and still growing with over 1,100 customers. They've reached a Series C round, raising over $15 million. They are doing a lot of things right, and a lot of that has to do with what Kyle and his team have been able to accomplish on the marketing side because they've achieved 20x revenue growth with 70% of that sourced by marketing. And on Kyle's team, it's not just that he has what you think of as traditional marketers, but he also has the SDRs under his wing. And specifically today, we're going to talk a lot about marketing. And I want everyone listening to really pay attention to what we talk about because it might be counterintuitive to what you're used to hearing. And that is our topic today is making your brand your competitive advantage. So Kyle, first off, welcome to the show. Why is this on your mind and why is this important to you? Oh man, thank you. First off, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I So brand's important to me because I, I, I think that, especially in the software world, we're going to be constantly in future wars for the rest of our lives. And it's so much easier for competitors to build out feature sets that compete with yours that I, I, I truly believe that the only way you have a competitive advantage and you win a market is based off of your brand, which consists of your people, your customers, and you know the overall community that you develop as a company. We're going to dive all into this 
as we have our conversation today. But before we do that, let's learn a little bit more about Kyle himself. Now, Kyle, I'm curious to know. So you have you have an extensive marketing background. Like you've published three different books on marketing. You've been head of marketing at multiple companies or a leadership role of some kind. What I'm curious to know is if we take this, like if we take it back, I'm finna take y'all back, man. If we do that and we go into like the deep memory banks of Kyle Lacey, what is the first thing in your life that you ever marketed or sold? Oh, yeah. it, it could literally be like you convinced your oh, parents yeah. to get a dog. No, I, so there are three different things that happen. Number one is I was obsessed with garage sales growing up. We lived in a neighborhood, you know, for most of my childhood. And then we moved out to the country and there's no garage sales in the country, but <laughs> in the neighborhoods, we would have garage sales and I would try to sell everything that I owned. I would put it out on the driveway. People would come by. I would sell my stuff. Then I would go buy some thing that my parents probably threw, threw away a couple of weeks ago. But that was the first thing. The second one was uh, I tried to convince all of my neighbors to stop smoking. So I made signs and this I was four, four or five, maybe non-smoking signs and went and put them up all over their front doors and garage doors all over the neighborhood. And then the third was um, I was collecting cans to recycle and I made signs. I made leaflets that my mom helps me with that I then photocopied and took them around to houses to say, Kyle will be around with his wagon to pick up cans for recycling at like 5 p.m. on Tuesday. And I had drawn a picture of me pulling a red wagon with can like a whole, like way too many cans, which is very marketing of me <laughs> that I could ever, ever pull. But yeah, those are the three that come to mind. It was pretty, I had a pretty active childhood in the marketing world and sales. Did you, so then did you collect these cans to then go like resell them for two cents or whatever? Yeah, I honestly, I don't remember. All I remember is the marketing of the service. I don't know. <laughs> I don't really remember doing it or what I did with the cans, but I definitely, I had to have taken them and got change. <laughs> I'm assuming. I don't know why else I would do it other than I like the design of the cans. I have no idea. It's interesting you bring up those examples because I remember being probably like six or seven years old. And I also really enjoy garage sales. And one oh, day man, I love, I still love garage sales. Right. <laughs> like one day it was like, it was like summer break. And I remember my mom would always like call it, you know, from work, she'd always like check in at like, I don't know, one in the afternoon or something like that. And I was like, can we have a garage sale when you get home? <laughs> and she was like, mm, I don't know about that but why don't you put some things together and we can talk about it. And so like I spent the entire afternoon in the basement, just like grabbing things. And I'm pretty yeah, sure she thought uh, I would just drop it after like the phone call ended. Yeah. But then she got home and I was like, okay, like, so let's do this. Can we have our garage sale this evening? And she was like, well, I don't know if we really get any people after 4 PM. So <laughs> yeah. why don't you, you know, tell, tell you what, maybe if, if you still want to do it this weekend, we can have a garage sale. And I was like, okay. And then naturally I like forgot about it by the weekend. <laughs> yeah, we would, so we would have, you know, you would have those neighborhood garage sales, right? Where the, everybody would have, ah, this, was okay. when, this is when it was cool. Like neighborhoods still do this, but only like 20% of the houses do it. And this is when everyone did it. And, you know, one neighbor would have a snow cone machine. The other one would be making ice cream and you would ride your bike around all that stuff. I just, I loved it. And so we have in Indiana, there is a stretch of road. It's like 30 miles long 
if not more than that, where it's all garage sales in the in the May timeframe. Yeah. And I I haven't done it for a while and I definitely didn't do it last year. But um, <laughs> it, it it I love those things because you never know what you can find. It's kind of a hunt. If we fast forward beyond childhood and into through your teens, into your adult life and where you are now, is there a particular piece of marketing that stands out to you as the worst way you have ever been marketed to? The worst way that I've been marketed to or that yeah. I have marketed? Because there's the worst plenty. way that, well, okay, let's, let's do that well, question. So, the worst way that you have marketed and then I want to know the worst way you've been marketed to. Well, okay, so I... I uh, I played music in junior high with a friend of mine and we, and our band was called DJ ice. Nice. <laughs> and, and I had like the old mix maxer or something that you could buy for PC to mix like tracks. And he played guitar and sang, and it was DJ ice music for the working people. <laughs> we, were, <laughs> we were like in seventh grade and we made this poster with, I still have the poster somewhere downstairs, but DJ Ice, Music for the Working People, had cassette tapes that we had recorded these on using our computers and stuff. I'm pretty sure we just put the mic up to the computer speaker and recorded the song playing, and that was the, on the tape. And my mom <laughs> used to do my mom. My mom used to make crafts like uh, wooden calendars and pictures and all that, and she would sell them at craft shows. And we went and tried to sell these tapes at a craft show with this poster that said DJ ice music for the working class. And it was terrible. Nobody bought it. <laughs> I think my, I think my mom might've given one of her friends money to come buy a tape from us, but it's definitely the worst thing I've, I've ever marketed. 100%. <laughs> All right. Now on the flip side, okay, then, so, what's the worst thing that you've, that's ever been marketed to you or the worst marketing you've ever received rather. I, I can't, man. That is a great question. I I think it's when I can't think of a of a particular thing. Actually, the worst way to market to me, and it I I'm, it gets me so upset is when people make billboards, and you can't read hmm. the text on the billboard. I hate it. Like it is, it ruins my day. It will ruin my day if I'm driving by a billboard. And it's just some person's face and you have no idea what the hell they do because some marketing company just said, Hey, we'll buy you a billboard. I <laughs> like, I, it's not in particular to me, but I, it happens way too often and billboards work people. You just got to actually do them correctly. Um, so that's probably my biggest pet peeve in marketing. And that's why I've never bought something from a billboard that I can't read. <laughs> is it safe to say then that the last year working remotely, your life has been significantly better because you haven't had to drive past as I've many been billboards? I've been so much happier. <laughs> I've uh, Well, we did drive to Florida. That was a little rough. And if you've ever driven down uh, I-65, uh, there is a law firm, Daryl Isaacs, who's the hammer, and his billboards are awesome. But he pretty much <laughs> bought out 900 miles of I-65 because that is all that's on there is this Daryl Isaacs guy. And he makes, mo he's like has movie posters and it's like him in a movie, yeah. but it's him as a, as an injury attorney. I like those billboards. Yeah. But it's kind of like, if you've seen that movie, I love you, man with Paul Rudd, 
yeah. where Jason Siegel ends up like buying out billboards for him as a real yeah. estate agent. And it's like <laughs> James Bond licensed to sell all that stuff. You know, NPR actually did a report recently on uh, like billboard, billboard law firms and like, why do they buy billboards? Why do they choose their location and how it's actually really successful as a marketing tool? Oh man, this guy, he is so successful. And I've, what, what bothers me is why doesn't he just buy the billboard company? <laughs> you know how much money he's probably spending? Just buy the freaking billboards, right? right. Like just, you can own a media conglomerate at, with your with your trial attorney, <laughs> whatever you call it. All right. So from billboards to brand building, um, <laughs> can you talk through how you got started at Lessonly? Because at this point, you've been there for about- uh, Four years. Four years-ish, yeah. Yep. Uh, so I- it, it's it's pretty much similar to Exact Target, Salesforce, OpenView, like my past uh, jobs. It all kind of stems from the CEO of Exact Target, who's Scott Dorsey, or was the CEO of Exact Target co-founder. He um, he he pushed me. He encouraged me to go take the OpenView role. OpenView is a venture capital firm in Boston. Usually does Series A, Series B checks, mm-hmm. and. Spending time at OpenView, I met the guys at Lessonly because Lessonly is a portfolio company of OpenView. Lessonly is also Indianapolis and Lessonly is also involved with Scott Dorsey. So uh, when we were going to move back from Boston, it just made sense that we would, uh, that they were hiring a VP of marketing. This was my first like real stint on an exec team. And uh, the growth phase was correct. I knew pretty much the entire board. Like it just made sense to me that I would make that move because it's been a very supportive role if that makes sense. It does. I'm then curious to know, you because you were brought in as the VP of marketing. Mm-hmm. At that time, did you have in your mind, well, I'm going to be the CMO of this company? Yeah, my goal, I've always had a goal to be a CMO before I was 35. And that happened on my 35th birthday. So congrats. <laughs> not, not exactly. The, yeah. My 35th year, it wasn't like May 24th. Congratulations. You're now a CMO. Um, so that was a goal. And it just so happened that, you know, we were, we were just growing and it was, you know, it's still fun. We're still growing. And, you know, it made sense that I would continue to build out the team because my, my main thing is just more challenges. And as long as there's more challenges coming our way as a team, then I am fully engaged. You mentioned the goal of being a CMO by 35. I just have to share a quick anecdote here. When I created a Twitter account, Back in 2010, I believe it was. My original idea for my Twitter handle, I didn't do it, but it was going to be at CMO by 30. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, well, that's a little conceited. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then I went with Raj Nation and the name stuck from there. So yeah, I, I well, guess that's, I that was a better path. move. That was a better but, move. Yeah, but, I like that but no, I, I definitely had a similar goal. I, our path's kind of ultimately ended up being different, you and I, but um, sure, very much that same kind of thought process of like leading initiatives and everything. Um, yeah. And I didn't know that I went into OpenView. Like I, I've, I've started an agency, you know, a couple years after college. So yeah. I was thinking, do I want to do the CEO thing again? Do I want to start something again? Do I want to become an operator again? Cause venture capital was really interesting and that type of stuff. But I ultimately it made sense that I would continue down that operator route. See, what I found was, so when I was in college, my thought was like, oh, I definitely want to work at like an ad agency. 
And I had literally been like following a specific agency, like yeah, the me entire too. four me too. years. And I had like me shadowed too. a couple people there along the way. And I interviewed with them. I even got the job, but I saw in the interview process, I was like, cause the, you know, the whole like hire based on like accounts that you have, I was like, okay, so there's zero stability because you just get fired if they lose the account. <laughs> yeah. And also the reality of this job is you just sit in an Excel spreadsheet and do media buys all day. And that sounds yeah. awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 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 same path, man. I like one of my favorite books is emotional branding by, I'm going to butcher his name, but I think it's Mark Gobe. I've never actually seen him or heard him interviewed, mm. but um, it was all about like the, the product design and the advertising campaigns. And this was written in the nineties. And I, I thought that I wanted to go work in advertising as well. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, 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 I stemmed more towards music business mm but wanted to work in an agency that supported record labels. And then that was 2008, 2007, 2008. I graduated in 2006. And that was when like MySpace music was just destroying yeah. everyone. Right. <laughs> like it was just record labels had no idea what to do. And I was like, eh, maybe I'm going to, maybe I should go uh, do something else. Maybe I should do more of a brand route. It's kind of funny to see like the, like, I always look at like how different technologies of the time even like impact pop culture. And if you remember, oh sure, I believe it was the winter of two thousand seven, early two thousand eight, when Lupe Fiasco's "The Cool" album came out. And in yes. one of the songs, "Hip Hop Saved My Life," he's telling the story of like a Houston rapper that he's made up. But he says eleven hundred fa uh, fans on his MySpace page, yes. which like today yes. that line has no relevance. But at the time, no it relevance. meant so much. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, can you like? The and now it's all Spotify and streaming and 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 you have you have uh, independent artists that are making huge names from themselves via TikTok and Instagram and all that stuff. I love yeah. it. I absolutely love it. I think it's the direction it should have went to begin with. At a deeper level, is a kind of a tangent here. This is actually why I think shows like Seinfeld and Friends have had such staying power because they never really relied on the technology of the time to make their plot. Yeah. Yep. Right. Like there were episodes where Jerry had a computer in the back corner versus just like an open. I don't think desk. he ever used it. Did he? Ever yeah, but yeah, it? but it was never a part of the episode. Do like uh, maybe to buy an airplane ticket, maybe I think right. one. That's that was it. It was never yeah. used. Uh, there was some phone stuff, but but it was all like that's how you, you be timeless. You don't rely on. Oh yeah, the, sure. The tech one hundred percent or the the hot flavor of the day. So maybe that's a good conversation around brand then. Um, and technology as well. So what you notice as companies are growing is they are so deeply focused on product and it's all about product development, product life cycle. Um, let's hire a product marketer, which is often one of the first marketing hires, if yeah. not the first. At what point should a company be focusing on brand or start focusing on brand? I mean, it, it's day one. It's day one. You have to, uh, the founders, the original people have to believe in the foundation of the company, right? And, and Leslie is a good example of that. Our values are timeless. They will not be redone. They're not like drive excitement and blah, 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 right? It's it like they were, they were built from the core of our CEO. He lives and breathes all of it. And the mission statement is we help people do better work so they can live better lives. It doesn't matter what you build. It mm -hmm. all applies, right? 
So I think the I think it's foundational because a brand starts uh, inward, and it will always be internal first. And if you can't scale a community of people that believe in what you do and the brand, which is the brand, and they are not the voice of the brand, it does not matter what you try to do externally. It will never work. It will break. It will. There's gotta be. There's gotta be believers. Um, and you've got to have a way to scale it. A lot of times those first 16 people, 15 people, like it doesn't scale very well. And I've, I've been very lucky to have worked at three companies now that figured that out. Exact Target had figured that out. Salesforce, you damn sure they figured it out very early on, right? And they still do. And Lessonly has. And it's very, it's interesting to just watch a company change, but still maintain the foundational purpose of who they are, whether it's 200 employees, 2000 employees or 20,000 employees. Mm. And so it's got to start, you've got to build the community internally before, before customers. And then the next step is customers. Customers have to believe in the brand, have to believe in the community, have to believe in what you're doing. And then the market will collapse. In my opinion, that's why I have a problem with people that are like still trying to find product market fit talking about category creation. Mm. It's like, why in the hell do you, you have no idea what you're even selling. You're two years into a product, like get the customers. They're going to love it. They're going to tell you what it is. Lessonly's eight years in, and we are finally hitting the ground in a category type model. Um, Interesting. So, so so you think that at the product market fit stage, it's too early to be talking about category design. Yes. Unless it's, I, I mean, look, there are, I'm sure you're going to have listeners going to be like, Hey, what about Datadog or whoever? Like mm. there are outliers that will figure that out early on and they're going to be a rocket ship. Right. Um, but for the majority of us, you should not be thinking about category creation until you've get, you get a subset of customers that love what you do and believe in what you do. Mm. Um, I think Gainsight did that very well. Anthony at Gainsight, I think he figured that out early on, um, you know, and, and the product will change as you build it out. And I think that's important to note as well. And I think a lot of times companies spend too much time and energy on analysts early on when they should be saving that for something else and then hit the analyst route when they have the customer base to, to validate it. Sorry, One that was thing, a really long answer. Kind of got no, it's, a, it's, a, it's a helpful so, answer. But it actually opens up a healthy part of this conversation, which is you talked about community. You used the word community six or seven times. And I think oftentimes we think about getting customers, not necessarily building community. So how do you view the relationship between customer base and community base and is it easier for some, for, for some markets versus others? Uh, so the, the end of that question is definitely, uh, it definitely makes more sense in some industries other than others. I'd say like the developer world, like engineers, like you're selling to DevOps or whatever. Uh, I think that, that plays the community element a little bit easier. Now I've never done it. So this is me speaking out of turn is at least what I've seen in the market because that's how they buy, right? They buy from their peers. If their peers using Datadog, the other person's going to use Datadoc, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I you think know, that's a, an industry as well, or it's an audience that likes to share knowledge with one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Absolutely. There's no real like competition between the other. Absolutely. Person. For for other industries or other just use cases, I think it's just dependent on you know what the community is, right? Like you can have a a uh, outreach buying sales hacker, right? And that's a sales community that was already built. Uh, for exact target, it was around the brand. It was Orange Nation, like it was around Orange as the, as the exact exact target brand. You went through your Orange onboarding. Customers had Orange stuff. Our entire conference was Orange. Leslie's kind of doing the yellow thing in that route, um, and then you just have it over the community of people that are already customers. And I and it's it's really really hard to do if you don't have a subset of customers that love you. Um, and that's also a reason why it's really hard to build a community early on. Mm -hmm. You know, I think talking about category creation and community development happens after you've figured out product market fit and you've figured out scale and you've figured out your internal community first. So it's almost like you need the, both the tangible and the intangible infrastructure, if you will, to be able to support community and support it. Well, you need the, yeah, you need the people, like people need to believe in what you're selling. Right. And that's, and then your people will help you build a community. Right. It's, it's just really hard to be a newer piece of software or a newer company in general. I don't care what you sell, honestly, to create a community, unless you also have had that community in the past. Hmm. Like if the CEO of, of uh, Twilio, what's his name, Jeff, um, if he were to go start another company, he's got a, like, <laughs> that is a given community that's moving with him, right? Sure. But for people that like new entrepreneurs or where you're just trying to start something, uh, it's going to take a lot of time and energy to do that, but you need a foundation. Most people just jump right into Got to create community, got to create community, got to create community. Mm. And you've got to create the foundation or the company won't scale. If you want to scale something, if you want to build a lifestyle business, that's a completely different sure. conversation. Even then, though, there's an argument that could be made that community would still benefit mm -hmm. even your lifestyle business. Yeah, for, now, yeah, and it will grow, but but at a, at a different speed, right? Right, of course, of course. So let's look at like Lessonly's strategy amidst all this. Can you talk us through, so uh, actually, let me ask it this way. Oftentimes as companies grow, yes, there's a marketing department, but marketing is kind of like an order fulfillment department where it's like different people in the company are like, oh, I need this marketing. Can That's you right. make it? And it's kind of sure. just like a, a, it's kind of like a glorified, like graphic design team. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and like collateral development team. So that's not the case. Or that's not the perception I have of Lessonly anyway. And, and at least from what I've known of you over the last several months, like I don't think you would tolerate that. And you no. probably would have quit if that were the case. So can you talk us through like, how did you, how does Lessonly's marketing team have a real seat at the table here regarding decision-making and, and strategy? Uh, we produce revenue. We're, we're, re you know, I, I am a, um, I'm revenue before brand. I love brand, but in order for us to do things like our customer community, our board game, our golden llama, direct mail, virtual events, we had to prove that we could generate revenue for the sales team. And when I say generate, meaning sourcing deals that close, right? And so the problem with a lot of marketers 
is that it's it's very communications based. It's like we have designers, brand, you know, PR, comms, uh, corp, basically kind of corporate marketing, right? If you're if you're thinking about that structure, um, and it, you don't get a lot of say when you're not producing ARR, like for especially for a scale up, right? Um, so I, that was my first task was just to make sure that we were constantly sourcing revenue and sourcing more revenue and hitting revenue goals. My teams are comped on their variables based off of revenue. Um, but we also have the, the brand team that's design and web dev and they are, you know, we, we have an internal agency basically that helps support, uh, all of our business units because I don't, I also don't want to give control of the brand over to an agency or over to a separate team because of the time and energy that my team has spent building this thing out over the past four years. So I want to highlight something that you said there, which is, you know, the topic today is making your brand, your competitive advantage and your, and, and that's the topic. But what's important to note here is you said, well, we are responsible for revenue and I prioritize revenue over brand. So can you just unpack that a little bit more? Because I, I want to make sure everyone listening really understands yeah. what you mean by this and, and how brand ties into revenue. Yeah. And, and brand, uh, it's just really hard to talk about brand because it's all encompassing. Like the, the, inter- the application that prospects, that um, a candidate, job candidates are f- filling out, that's part of the brand. How you're interacting with somebody on an interview is part of the brand. The call that your account manager had with one of your biggest customers, that is part of the brand, right? The way that our CEO goes and talks about nonviolent communication and and more of the soft skills of leadership, that's part of the brand. Me on this podcast, it's part of the Lessonly brand, right? We are all part of it. We are a living, it's a living, breathing organism. So when I say brand, it is how do we set up ourselves apart and deliver things that surprise and delight mm. from a creative standpoint? So for me, it's Lamination, which is our mobile community. It's our customer community. Uh, we launched an e-commerce brand called Ali Lama & Co. Like we have a board game that we send out. And, All to, that and just stuff, to, to clarify here, he's saying Llama because that's that's lessonly. Yeah, yeah. Ali Lama is our mascot. You join the Llama Pack if you join Lessonly. Llama Nation is our customer base, that type of stuff. Um, and all that's part of the brand, right? But uh, I, I will forever believe that you, you have to give designers and creatives the ability to be irrational in order to come up with cool ideas that set you apart from the pack, right? And people that are held to a revenue number, I'm, I'm going to get to the, the initial yeah. question. People that are held to a revenue number on like, we're going to have a retro about this three weeks from now to make sure that we got ROI on that board game that you made. They're not like, they can't be as creative because they're going to be worried about the cost. They're going to be all this stuff. So for me, it is 75% of our budget headcount program spend goes towards generating revenue. We hit our goals. We grow revenue quarter over quarter. That allows us to say 25% of headcount and program spend goes to brand and we do not measure it other than direct traffic went up. Great. Like, I, I just don't, I have no, I just don't want to measure brand. I want it to surprise. I want people to be delighted by it. I don't need somebody questioning me whether our Ali Lama and Koei Commerce brand actually did anything to drive revenue. Like that's not the point. Right. So, 
for me, it's, but in order for me to have done that 25% of budget, I had to produce the revenue first. Like you can't go into a marketing leadership role and be like, we're going to launch an e-commerce brand and that's going to be an awesome brand play. And you're still trying to figure out revenue growth. Like you can't Mm -hmm. do that because you are going to be one of the unfortunate stats that are happening right now and in scale up soft venture back software that you're going to be removed in like 16 months. And that's, that's the average right now for marketing and sales leaders. That's about 16 months tenure. Um, so uh, for me, you prove the fact that you can generate revenue so that everybody else is like, hell yeah, let's do that crazy idea because we're hitting our revenue goals. We are a company. Like we have investors, right? We can't just go do a bunch of brand stuff all the time. So that's why we kind of separate the two in order to surprise and delight prospects and customers, because ultimately the only thing that makes any of us relevant is the experience that they're having. And that's it. So it's 75% revenue generating activities, which unlocks the ability to do 25% of non-revenue generating brand building activities. Yeah. And you can do like... I'm sure somebody's going to ask why 25%. Sure. Um, I don't know. But essentially have enough great. have enough focus on <laughs> revenue so that way you can have enough focus yeah. on brand. Yeah, and don't and just stop trying to measure it all the time. Like I get I get that you need like social measurement and all that and and it's just not something we focus on at Lessonly. It is right. so delight our customers, delight our prospects, the brand will build with it. Right. So the lesson here from Lesson Lee, ironic, is, oh, yeah. uh, nice. is in, in order to be able to do things that you don't measure, you have to do enough things well that you do measure. Well, if you're going to win a market, you can't be in a feature war all day long. So you got to do cool stuff. And you can't do cool stuff if you're not generating revenue. Right. Plain and simple. Now... I want to unpack more of the revenue generating activities before I get into that. Let me just take a step back for a moment. All this season, we are featuring different companies in the startup hype man client portfolio and sharing their pitches with you that we have developed. Today, we're featuring Engagedly, an HR tech company, and we're featuring their pitch using the startup hype man Kpasa pitch formula. So if you are in HR and you're an HR leader, Perhaps you have felt like you've just been buried in spreadsheets and paper documents, tracking your team's goals, their OKRs, and their overall engagement with the company. And that's probably creating a trickle-down effect of missteps in the process, having to chase down managers for approval, and reviews being subjective. Now, in a pre-COVID world, it was partially tolerable because everyone was at least roughly in the same office. In a remote work environment, it's kind of impossible. And as things potentially go back to a hybrid workforce, it's probably not going to get any easier. So where Engagedly steps in is in helping leaders like you streamline and control your processes regardless of the physical environment. Organizations are using Engagedly for company-wide people enablement. All of performance management lives on one platform in one place, so there's no missteps, no hunting down managers, and no having to wonder where something is in the process. HR leaders love it because they're not buried anymore. More importantly, though, at an organizational level, performance turns into something that happens for employees and team members instead of happening to them. 
You can learn more and get a demo at engagedly.com. Again, that's engagedly.com to give your team people enablement. Today, we are talking with the Lessonly CMO, Kyle Lacey, specifically about making your brand your competitive advantage. Before the break, Kyle, we talked about that 75-25 split. 75% of Lessonly's marketing is revenue-generating activity. Now, one thing I know from having spoken to you a few times before is that you have SDRs aligned under marketing. Like SDRs are your team. Not every company does that, though. Many companies have SDRs allocated towards sales leadership. So I got to imagine that's one way you're generating revenue or, or tracking revenue generated is through your yep. SDRs. But can you talk through the decision to have them under your team and how that fits into the overall revenue picture out of marketing's uh, uh, wing? Yeah. I, so the like, like everything in a company that's growing significantly, you're breaking things constantly. It, the current, the model that we had in place in 28, like the middle of 2018 wasn't working. Um, so I raised my hand and said, I'd love to take on this challenge. Can you, can and you qualify what you mean when you say it wasn't working? They, like it wasn't, the channel wasn't working. Hmm. Uh, demos weren't being booked to the point that they should have been. Like the team just, it was, they weren't hitting their goals is the best way. Um, so, you know, part, that's part of it. The other part of it was I want, I believe that if you are producing revenue as a marketer, like direct sourcing revenue and not any of this influence crap, you are, you are forcing alignment between sales and marketing, which is probably outside of product and engineering, one of the most important things that need to be aligned within a scale up. Um, so those were the two reasons. You know, they, uh, AEs, AEs still self-source, but inbound and outbound. So outbound BDRs who are prospecting cold. And then you've got our inbound SDRs that are working deals from the website. Like they, they contribute a significant amount to an AE's quota. Uh, and then the AE self-sources. So it's, you know, it ranges between 50 to 70% of the revenue every quarter, depending on, uh, depending on goals and what we're in fluctuations in the market and stuff like that. Mm. Aside from the or aside from the SDRs, I should say, what are the other trackable revenue generating things? Is it you look at your inbound efforts and your demand gen and you say, oh, well, this led to X number of booked meetings. Can you walk us through kind of the playbook there? Yeah. So we go, we, and this is, I'm going to preface this by saying that this, uh, we have two segments. We have our commercial SMB segment and we have an enterprise segment. And the enterprise segment is fairly new to Lessonly. So we are, we are evolving the way we track this stuff. So for the commercial segment, it's pretty much who initially sourced it. Like did an SDR set the meeting? Did they come through a form? Did they raise their hand to get a demo? Did they come from an event or direct, organic, paid, all those channels? And if they sourced it within 60 days, like it's, that's the source that they gets credit for the close one deal. If it's after 60 days, then it's whoever touched it first. Like if an AE then sources it or whatever. Um, on, the, on the enterprise side, it's a combination of demo and pipeline. And we're starting to move more towards a pipeline generated model over how many meetings did you book just because of the nature of enterprise. Like it's hmm. just... You can't, it's 12 month sales cycles. You've got multiple meetings, multiple touches. 
AEs and SDRs are aligned one-to-one working together on account planning and all that stuff. So we have definitely been shifting the model over the past six months, but it's usually either, did you set a meeting and where did it come from and what type of pipeline did it generate? Now on the sales side, are AEs themselves also doing any active outbound prospecting or is it solely your SDR team? Yeah. AE, so AEs are responsible for self-sourcing a portion of their quota. Yeah. So they're okay. also prospecting. Okay. So then I'm curious, let's say there's a situation where an, an AE has self-sourced a lead. Now that lead takes the meeting. Well, yeah, sure. The email reached out to them at the right time, but they've also just generally been aware of Lessonly through good marketing over the years. Are you saying, and maybe on the call, they say, oh yeah, I heard about you guys. And so I was interested. Now, is that become a marketing revenue generated thing or is it a sales generated thing? Sales. But that, but, and this is why I hate, you know, marketers that use influence as a number would say, well, that means, that means marketing influence 20% of it or whatever. Like who cares? Marketing should influence 100% of the <laughs> revenue you're generating, right? That's why I don't measure it. It's like if, if somebody comes in and they weren't influenced by something, uh, that's impossible. It is impossible, right. right? They'd have to like pick up the phone and never heard of it. Like I just, uh, I could talk about the influence metric. I just think it's just yeah. a bunch of BS, but uh, yeah, it's just, it, it's depending on the service level agreement, the SLA that we set with ops and with sales to say in these time frames, if the channel is the one that sourced it, it's the one that gets the deal. Hmm. What would you say then is, so let's look at like on the, the things you are responsible for where it's not influence quote unquote, like let's take a virtual event, right? Yeah. Now, I mean, that's obviously like a heavily influencing event, but is it, hey, anyone who registered for this virtual event, uh, if it, within a 60-day window, that falls If it was marketing. first touch, like if they heard about the event through a LinkedIn ad, came and signed up for the event, and then they went closed one, like if they signed a contract, it would be credited to uh, LinkedIn. And like we have attribution modeling, but we don't... Mm-hmm it's mostly just around budgeting. Do you think then, because the more you're, you're talking about this, do you think it's possible to be able to make brand a competitive advantage if you don't have like kind of a sophisticated tech stack? Yeah, because I, I think Lessonly won the first five years or four years uh, because of brand. Hmm. And, the, and the way that, Max built the company early on to be customer first. I mean, one of the values is we put learners first and people stick around. We have customers that have been with us for eight years because they're just taken care of. They're treated like a human <laughs> and not a, not a MRR number every month. Right. So I, I do think that, that you have advantages, of, but I, I, we don't really use our tech stack for, for brand advantage other than like a lot of our tech stacks more around generating revenue. Yeah. Like I don't have a, I don't have a listening technology or like a meltwater or whatever. Like I, I it's just, um, 
it's, it's more of the experiences that I care about, like our events, what happens when you come to the website? Like that's why we look at consumer marketers over other B2B marketers when we're trying to find inspiration. It's like, what would Nike do? What would Warby Parker do? You know, what would Aldo do? Um, and that's how we frame it. And that's how we, that's how we build our brand and build our identity and build our experiences at Lessonly. I'm glad you, you mentioned that last point because I, I agree with your, with your thought process there. And one of the trends I've seen over the last, I'd probably call it really two years is this convergence between B2B and B2C marketing, where before it was like, if you're a B2B marketer, it's almost like <laughs> forbidden to do something a way a B2C company would. And now you're seeing so many more B2B companies like mirroring what B2C does to the extent that like, you know, one of the things that I've recently done, but I, but I got the idea from ProfitWell was yeah. to like, look at like hype retail companies and do like drops, yeah. right? And give, give your audience content or give them product through that measure where it's a drop instead of, you know, the traditional way where it's like, well, let's figure out a HubSpot demand gen strategy for this and, and all this stuff. And it's like, hey, some of these people, you might not even get their information, but right. you're going to get your stuff in their hands. Right. Right. And that and that's why I'm a huge fan of, uh, of Awistia, Chris Savage. Like he talks all the time about how companies should be media companies. And that's that that you got to get granular uh, actually trying to explain what a media company is. But for me, it's just producing things that delight people without saying, hey, you need to drive 30 grand in business from something that costs 10. Yeah. Right. It's just you lose. Now, that doesn't mean you're not fiscally responsible. Everybody listening to this call right now, you still need to be fiscally responsible. That's why we produced revenue first before we decided to do all these crazy things. Um, but it, you've got, you've got to think more like a consumer marketer because they care because they live and in e-commerce marketers even better because they live and die by the experience. Mm -hmm. If I, if, if your cart breaks and I'm trying to buy something, you really think I'm going to come back? No, I'm going to go to Amazon and probably buy it because Amazon is ugly as hell, but it's one click purchasing. There's a reason why they patented it in 97, right? Um, it's just easy. So stuff we keep in mind at Lessonly, but we still, we still have our things to work on. There's still some, some B2B villains creeping in there at, <laughs> at, at some points. <laughs> well, can you maybe just quickly run through, you met, you, you mentioned a couple examples earlier on in our conversation. Um, but for those who are not familiar with Lessonly, they probably didn't necessarily know what you were referencing. What are some of the fun brand things you guys have done? You talk about the board game, like the e-com store, but you, you mentioned those. And if people aren't familiar with Lessonly, they don't necessarily know what you're talking about. So maybe expand on a few of those, those things. Yeah. So, uh, we are the best one that we've done. Uh, well, there's a few, but uh, we give a golden llama every quarter to to an employee. Uh, and they're the golden llama for that quarter. And we decided that we were going to send a bunch of golden llamas to customers. And there wasn't any context to Lessonly at all. It was like, hey, this is what we do at Lessonly. We think you should give this golden llama to an employee that, that exhibits your values. And we've sent 5,000 of these things out. And, and we've had people take pictures with them and share them. And that was a cool idea. And it had nothing about the product, zero things about the product. Um, we wrote a book called Do Better Work. Max, to be clear, Max wrote, our CEO wrote a book called Do Better Work. 
zero things about the product. It's all about leadership development and people development and the human element of just living, right? Um, we've, we've spent a ton of time and energy building out dobetterwork.com and all this stuff that has to do with our mission. Um, and then the board game, we have pillars of our product, learn, practice, perform, assess. Um, and so we built out this llama board game that walked through the, the six uh, worlds of Lessonly and you had, you have game pieces and everything. Um, so, and that's just fun. It's fun to see companies playing that game because we spent so much time and energy building something that mattered. And I don't want another water bottle. I don't want another t-shirt. Like I, every, if you, everybody's t-shirt soft now, thank you, American apparel. Everybody's t-shirt is soft. Now I don't want another t-shirt. I want you to spend some time and energy as marketers trying to think of something that's different because that's what you should be doing as marketers, right? And I don't think a lot of marketers give their teams the ability to think outside of the box. And that's the main problem. They buy a vendor and they say, pick from this catalog. You could do a keychain that's a lamp mm-hmm. or what, whatever the hell you buy now. Like, <laughs> a keychain that's a lamp. That. <laughs> that was a terrible example. <laughs> I was thinking of the keychain uh, flashlights, but yeah. <laughs> And it, it just, I, I just can't, I cannot. I mean, it, you asked me the question and we could do this full circle. Now, a lot of the swag I get is terrible marketing. Yeah. Like I don't, well, it's, it's basically almost to the point sending where... me something that I'm going to throw away. You're giving me a task to do because you I, and, and I'm so with you to... on that, especially with like the, like, you're right. And at this point, if someone sends a not soft cotton shirt, I'm like, all right, come on. <laughs> like, what are you doing? I, there's no chance I'm wearing this. I, I, I will tell you a quick story. The, the, uh, the first t-shirt that I got from Morning Brew, this was like years ago before they, you know, now they're, now they're social media celebrities, but they sent me the, the, the most uncomfortable shirt I have ever received from a brand. And I sent an email to them. I was like, guys, we got to work on the shirt game here because it feels like something my dad wore to a softball tournament. Like it's just, it was just <laughs> if and, and large, I will say morning brew has upped it up their game significantly. And the swag I get is amazing from them, but that was, that was, uh, I just can't, it's a pet peeve of mine. Like the, like the billboards. It's like, well, you can and do I, better. I'm at the point where I'll, if someone is like, Hey, we want to send you a shirt. Uh, even it's like, it's like, Hey, it's like a thank you for doing something. I'll reply and I'll be like, Hey, I love the gesture. Uh, to be honest, like I'm like, my wardrobe is maxed out, not just with my own clothes, but with like branded apparel, like please take mine and just like donate it to, you know, like a shelter yeah, or donate yeah, to charity yeah. or something or goodwill. And uh, one I'll thing tell you we whenever, did. well, one, sorry, whenever I, uh, at some point this year, I'm probably going to do some startup hype man swag, but, and it'll be some form of apparel, but my whole thing with like, if you're going to do branded merch, it has to be something that someone would wear exactly regularly, exactly. right? It can't be like your company name, like slapped across the thing. And it like looks bad. Like it's gotta be something that like they might find on the shelf at Macy's or Nordstrom. And they're yeah. like, Oh, this is an interesting shirt. Yeah. I should wear this. Yeah. And we, you know, that's why we launched, we figured out that our customers want our swag. Our employees want our swag. So we launched Ali Lama and co it has nothing to do with Lessonly. It's its own brand. And we send, we set for every holiday, we're sending it out to our customers and they have the choice. They can either buy something or they can donate hmm. their gift card to donors shoes. 
and that's or to our um i'm sorry to our um i donate to donor shoes they can do it to our um brighter indie foundation which gives money to organizations in indianapolis for underserved kids and that's awesome and it's an it's its own brand it's not the lessonly logo on the front it's just a little llama that looks like a brooks brothers logo or <laughs> cotopaxi which uh, i'm a huge fan of cotopaxi but it's not <laughs> it's you got it. You got to be more creative. You have to be in order to win. And I think that's, that's the whole concept of this, of our, that's the underlying theme of this conversation. You've got to be creative to win. Now I have one more question here before we hit our wrap up. And that is if you were to fast forward to, so let me use an analogy here. Um, in sports, a manager, you know, wins the world series, wins a championship in Chicago, it happened, right? Joe Madden won a World Series for the Cubs. And then, you know, four years later, his time was up and you know, he wasn't fired, but his contract was not renewed. And in other cases, the coach or the manager is fired because they're not there anymore. So if you fast yeah. forward, whether it's Lessonly or a future company, what's the thing, you, what's the George Costanza thing you do that they're like, all right, we have to fire this guy now? <laughs> like, what's like the, I, ran, I streaked across the field during a Yankees game or I dragged the World Series trophy through the parking lot thing that gets Kyle Lacey fired in his future life? Oh, man. Probably making a huge monetary bet on a crazy idea. I think that's <laughs> probably what's going to do it. It's going to be like, we should buy a Lamborghini and, and put Ali Lama on the side of it and give it away and it just fails. Lamborghini. I don't know. A Lamborghini. <laughs> oh my God. We have now, we're going to listen to this four years later after I get fired for buying a Lamborghini. I'm going to be like, it happened. That happened there. The idea came from there. And then this will be Startup Hype Man, the podcast, the show that ultimately gets you fired. <laughs> and then you're going to have to hire me. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. All right. So to wrap up then, um, Kyle, where can our listeners uh, find you and learn more? Uh you can go, well, for Lessonly, Lessonly.com, um, you can go to, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn and uh, Kyle P. Lacey on Twitter. Awesome. Kyle, who's one person who you want to shout out? Could be a coworker, a mentor, an advisor, a team member. I mean, I, I'm going to shout out the entire marketing team that I serve. I'm very lucky to serve at Lessonly. Um, they, are, they are some of the best people I've ever worked with. So I'm going to shout out all of them. Cause it's a great, well, we, we got to be able to tag one person though. When we put, when All we right. post this, Helen Gardner, Helen Gardner is our brand. Uh, she leads our brand team. Um, recently, uh, recently promoted to run the brand team. And she has been integral from the very beginning since I've been there in the build out of the experience and the identity of Leslie. So the brand. Helen Gardner getting the shout out in addition to the entire marketing team. Yeah. Um, you can, well you now, can put all 45 names. Yeah. I'll, I'll just, I'll just, it'll be a crazy LinkedIn. will cap the <laughs> amount of tags you can do on that. Um, let's now do top, top lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on our discussion today. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you. Um, the topic today was making your brand, your competitive advantage. We talked about a lot of really good stuff to me. The one thing that, I want listeners to really keep in mind and keep close to heart is when it comes to brand building activities, this is, and this is probably the hardest thing to do, but it doesn't sound that hard. As you mentioned, resist the urge to pitch your product, resist the urge to mention your product. So many good pieces of content or good things that are put out get ruined 
because the company tries to then insert their product at the end of it. And you will destroy any goodwill you've created up to that point because yeah. people will feel like, oh my God, this was just a clever pitch that was disguised as something else. Kyle, yeah. top lessons or takeaways? Uh, top takeaway would be uh, if you think a campaign is creative, go sleep on it and then come back and look at it again because you probably could take it one step further. Ooh, I love That's that. my, because creativity wins. Creativity wins markets in my opinion. My final question, which is how we end every episode on this show, fill in the blank, Kyle. Entrepreneurship is blank. Oh, crazy. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Say more on that. Why crazy? You have to be crazy to be an entrepreneur. Like I, I lost years off the end of my life when I was, when I was a CEO of a company or, or at least just the guy who founded an agency of 10 people. Uh, <laughs> you've got to have, uh, and I mean this in all sincerity and honesty and love for entrepreneurs, you've got to have a, you've got to have a screw loose somewhere and not, not from a, not to say they're crazy, but you just, you have to take it one step farther than most normal human beings go. Whether, whether it's risk tolerance or whatever, optimism, um, you got to have, like, it's just, it's a special type of person that can build a company uh, and scale it. And I've seen that with Max, you know, Mark Benioff's a great example. Scott Dorsey, great example. Um, you know, I would never, <laughs> to be clear, I would never go to Scott Dorsey and say, I think you have a screw loose, Scott. But it's like, you've got to have, you got to be a little crazy in order to win. And um, I give huge respects for people that can do that. Huge respect. I will definitely say I have a couple screws loose myself. You do. And maybe a couple of them you need do. tightening. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I just don't want to tighten them. So. <laughs> he is Kyle Lacey, Lacey, the Lessonly CMO. Kyle, thank you so much for joining today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Thank you. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.